Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the, no of the light. And you, my father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That's a poem by Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet, as he faced the death of his father. For Thomas, grieving the loss of his father was to take up arms and to fight against an enemy that came and robbed us of life and happiness, to rage against the unnatural intrusion of death. Today we're dealing with the difficult subject of grief, the sense of loss that we feel particularly at the death of a loved one, a parent, a child, maybe an unborn child. Or it could be the loss of health as old age approaches, the loss of shattered dreams, broken marriages and relationships. They all involve grief. So I want to acknowledge that uh, before we begin that you may be grieving not just in the death of a loved one, although you may be in that place too, but you may be grieving in any one of these ways or other ways as well. We'll be focusing more on the grief that comes from death, robbing us of someone we love. But the same kinds of feelings and suffering that grief brings may well apply to you or someone you know in one of these other areas as well. Last week we looked at anxiety um, and like as uh, similar to Pete last week, I also want to start with a disclaimer. I am no expert on grief. I don't claim to have any answers to know how to work through grief from a psychological point of view. My aim this afternoon is to present some thoughts about what the Bible has to say about grief and what I believe God wants to tell us about how he provides for our needs when we are grieving. So why don't we come together and pray as we start. Father God, we come to a difficult subject, grief. We acknowledge that death, loss of many kinds are things that rob us of happiness and joy. And through those times it can be very difficult to see you and your love. We pray today, Father, that you would speak. Uh, through us, that you would speak words of comfort and encouragement and hope. Amen. So here's where we headed this afternoon. I've got three points. Uh, if you have your bulletin, uh, it should be there, uh, the outline. Uh, the three points are the rightness of grief, number one, 
that to grieve is a right, God-given response to the evil of death. Second point, there's a threat that grief brings. A threat to our relationships with other people and also a threat to our relationship with God. And then thirdly, the end of grief, meaning the place where God would lead us in grief is to show us that he is walking with us through our grief. So, point number one. Is this not on? Not on, okay. Here we go. The rightness of grief. Dylan Thomas had it right. Our instinct to rage against the dying of the light is right. Death is an unwelcome, unnatural intruder. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, Marshall, isn't death perfectly natural? What about the life cycle? You're born, you grow up, you grow old, you die. Well, that's the way we've come to think about death, isn't it? It's constantly around us. It certainly seems natural, but it isn't. Because it's not the way God intended things to be. Last week, Pete took us to Genesis 2. Uh, If you remember, that's the picture in the garden, the Garden of Eden, where the man and the woman were placed there to live in harmony with their creator. There was no death. There was no evil. But then in chapter 3, the man and the woman rebelled against the creator. They did the unthinkable, the unnatural thing. And that brought dreadful, unnatural consequences, including death. You see, death is a sign that things are falling apart, that things are not as they should be. What Dylan Thomas was raging against was how death breaks in and crushes potential. It destroys dreams. It tramples on hope. He instinctively knew that that's not the way things should be. Joe Biden, the former US president, was interviewed on TV about a tragic loss that he went through. This was before he was vice president. He, has just, he had just gone to Washington to be sworn into the office of senator uh, when he got a phone call from home. An emergency worker on the other end of the phone told him he needed to go back home straight away. Joe Biden said, well, why? what's, What's the problem? There had been an accident and his wife and daughter had been killed. Here's what Joe Biden had to say about that day. My God, I was angry at everything. I was angry at God, just angry. To rage, to be angry, to cry out, no, it's not right, it's not fair. That's how we instinctively respond to death. And we find that in the Bible that God says, yes, that's a right response because death is ugly, it's unnatural. It shouldn't be here. We're going to have a look this morning, this afternoon at least, at Psalm 88, which we just had read to us. The writer of this psalm is suffering grief. It may not be the uh, grief from a death, but it's certainly grief of a loss. 
loss of friends, loss of security, isolation. He starts off on a fairly positive note. Look at uh, verse 1 there. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out um, before you. There's a recognition that God is his hope. He's the one who's going to help him and to save him. But then then the rest of the psalm is pretty dark. There's a raw honesty. Look at verse 3. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. Verse 5, I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. Unlike a lot of the Psalms, there's no silver lining here. There's no happy ending. Look at, look at the last verse. Jump down with me to verse 18. You have taken from me friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend. And the thing with this Psalm isn't just that there's no silver lining to it, that it's dark. The writer also shakes his fist against God and he rages against God. Verse 6. You have put me in the darkest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me and you have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends. Verse 16. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. It's your fault, God is saying. You've done this to me. He's angry at God. He paints a picture of God that isn't very attractive. God is more like a hunter who has him in his sights, who's out to get him than than God being a protector, a loving father who looks after him. Look at verse 15. From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. What we're seeing here is the cry of grief, raw, honest and utterly realistic because that's what grief is like. It's not sugar-coated. The Bible doesn't edit out the hard bits so that God looks good. This is real life. And sometimes life is cruel and cold. When Owen died, sitting there in that hospital, as Julie described, there was nothing to soften the news from the the doctor. Negotiating the cultural and language differences were often an exciting challenge for us, but not at this point. They just put a gnawing gulf between us and anything that could be of comfort in that moment. No one to reach out to. Nothing that could fix the numbness and the pain. As it seemed to me at that moment, not even God. The fact that Psalm 88 sits right in the middle of the book of Psalms as a part of his word tells us that God sees our cry of pain and grief as being something that's important. He's not phased by them. He knows that it's natural, even a right response to the evil of death to be able to cry out like the psalmist. The story of the Bible is peppered with the raw cries of pain from some of the most godly saints. Job, David, Jeremiah, Habakkuk and then God's own son, Jesus. For God... Death isn't something to quietly accept. It's not a natural part of life that we should embrace and even celebrate 
as I've heard some people say recently. At one point in Jesus' life, um, towards the end of his ministry, he had a good friend named Lazarus. Lazarus got sick and died. Jesus was very close to this family. And as he went to their house, he was greeted by Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary confronted Jesus as he approached the house and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In the NIV translation, John, the author, goes on to say this. John 11, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Unfortunately, the English translation doesn't really do justice, doesn't really capture the tone of what John is saying here. The original language carries the idea of Jesus being angry. He's not just moved and troubled, but he's actually angry. He raged. He raged at death and the misery that it brings. God's own son understood that grief to cry, to rage, to rant at the unfairness of evil and death. They are right and natural responses. Now, maybe you're in the middle of grieving now. I don't know your circumstances. Perhaps it's the loss of a loved one. Perhaps the loss of health. Or something else. Having room, having permission to grieve is so important. Our culture doesn't do well uh, with grief, I don't think. We often encourage people not to, not, not necessarily by the words we say, but by our, by our actions. We encourage people not to cry in public. We encourage people to put on a brave face. And in church we can have a spiritual equivalent to that. We can make people feel pressured or feel pressured ourselves to put on a spiritual face. To say things like, well, I really miss my mum, but God allowed her to die for a reason. When we really want to say, no, it's not fair, God. It's not fair that God took my mum away. Or my life sucks. And I can't bring myself to sing these songs right now. Psalm 88 reminds us that if that's where we're at now, we should be free to express that to God and to each other. And for the rest of us who want to support those who are grieving, please give them room to grieve. Let them know it's okay to be angry. To only see the dark clouds without the silver lining. To only, to, and when it comes to knowing what to say, less is usually more. That is, we're often better off saying something like, I'm so sorry to someone who's grieving, than trying to offer a spiritual answer. When people try, in East Asia tried to comfort us after Owen died, that, 
people were very well-meaning. They, they had the, that their heart was in the right place. But often people just didn't know what to say. And what they said sometimes wasn't very helpful. Things like, God had a reason for taking Owen. Or, you need to trust that God knows best. Yes, both those statements are true, but they're not the thing that we needed to hear at the time. So there's a rightness to grief. It's the appropriate response to the evil of death. But my second point is that there's a threat to grief. Grief brings a threat in two ways. Firstly, it threatens to drive people away. As I said a moment ago, we're not good at dealing with death. When something goes wrong, we want to make it right. We want to fix the problem, make things better. We want to be able to pat our friends on the shoulder and say, don't worry, everything is going to be okay. But the problem with death is that death is very permanent. We can't bring our loved one back. We can't make things okay. And so we're at a loss to know what to do and what to say. C.S. Lewis, the well-known Christian author, suffered the loss of his wife and wrote a little book about it called A Grief Observed. He had this to say about the reaction of others when he was grieving. He said, An odd byproduct of my loss is that I'm aware of being an embarrassment to everyone I meet. At work, at the club, in the street, I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds whether they'll say something about it or not. I hate it if they do, and I hate it if they don't. Julie and I became painfully aware of the same kind of thing. It was isolating and hurtful when people avoided us because they didn't know what to say. Sometimes at church and other places people couldn't avoid us, but they would avoid saying anything about Owen's death or asking how we were going. It was all smiles and pretense that life was rosy. I would do anything to avoid those people. I want to encourage us, and I speak to myself here as well, to get over that embarrassment with those who are grieving. Please acknowledge their loss. Because what they're going through is the centre of their universe at the time. Even if your words are fumbling and you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, get over it. A heartfelt word and a hug can make a huge difference and help just a bit with that yawning sense of loneliness and isolation. Secondly, grief can threaten to push us away from God. We've seen in Psalm 88 that the psalmist blamed God for his grief. Job and Jeremiah, two of the most godly people in the Bible, at different points also accused God of bringing misery and calamity upon them. I made the point before that God gives us permission to cry out in pain, even if that cry of anguish involves blaming and accusing God. Because one of the things that God values most in us is honesty. He knows what we think long before we even think it ourselves. It doesn't surprise or shock him when we are angry at him. 
God would much prefer that we are open and honest with him in our pain than put on a spiritual mask and pretend that we're full of praise and thanks when actually we are a seething bundle of anger. Being honest with God isn't a problem. The problem can come when we lose sight of God's goodness. Grief can do that because it's so hard for us to have perspective. It's so hard for us to see through the darkness and see signs of God at all. Have a look at the beginning of Psalm 88 again with me. Verse 1, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. The one ray of light in this whole psalm, it may not seem like it, it may not seem like much, but actually it was enough. You see, even in the midst of the darkness, when all he can see is the pain of loss, his friends taken away, he's isolated, he's in pain, feeling the weight of evil crushed down on him, even in the midst of that, all that experience is framed by that statement in verse 1, that God is the one who saves him. And that's the key. God is still good despite everything that has happened to the psalmist. He holds on to that truth like a drowning man clings to a life raft. Job, right in the midst of his rant against God for bringing calamity on him and being his enemy, clings to what he knows to be true of God despite everything that's happened to him. In the middle of his suffering, even as he is saying that God has been unfair to him, he's going to take God to court, he's going to, he's going to win against God, blah, blah, blah. Even amidst that, he then says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job 19 verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. Quite an amazing statement of the goodness of God despite everything that's happened to him. But it's so easy for grief to lead us down a different path. It's so easy for grief to threaten our relationship with God and to drive us away from him. Paul Tripp, the Christian author, tells the story of a young man suffering grief. We'll call him Jim. Jim got to the point where he had to quit work. It got too much for him. This is what Tripp says about Jim. That left him with only one reason to leave his house, church. He was a Christian in the habit of going to church. He began arriving late for church, so he slid into the back row without having to talk to anyone. Then he would leave during the last song. But this didn't last long. After dressing for church one Sunday morning, he sat down on his bed to put on his shoes, but simply lay down instead. Going to church only left him more ashamed and discouraged. So he didn't go that Sunday or any Sunday thereafter. He was left with not only only overwhelming and debilitating fatigue, but an empty life as well. He had no reason to get out of bed. Paul Tripp then uh, happened to see uh, um, Paul, sorry, Jim, in his capacity as a counsellor. 
And he goes on to describe his conversation with this young man. More and more, Jim thought about God and the meaning and purpose of life. But rather than letting what the Bible says about God to help him to interpret the overwhelming circumstances he was facing, he let his circumstances redefine his view of God. How could a loving God let this happen to anyone? In his endless and dark conversation with himself, he finally concluded that if there was a God, he was not good or worthy of his trust. And that's the danger of grief, to let the darkness reshape our picture of God and push us away from him. The alternative is to allow God into the picture, which brings us to our third point, the end of grief, meaning the place where grief can lead us. The place where God wants to lead us through grief is to him, to show us that he is walking with us through our grief, holding on to us, even carrying us. Now, what I don't want to say at this point is that God being the end of grief doesn't mean that he takes everything away, that he takes all the pain away. It doesn't mean that he somehow makes all the hurt and loneliness disappear. It doesn't mean that we can pray a prayer and then life becomes normal and joyful again. Grief takes time. It can take a very long time to grieve properly, to try to shortcut that process and force someone else or force ourselves to sing songs of thanksgiving before we're ready to sing them or to tell people to move on while they are still deeply mourning. That can be very hurtful, guilt-inducing, even harmful. So please understand that what I'm not saying is that God takes all the hurt away as if it was some kind of magic formula. It's not. But what I do want to say is that knowing that God is with us, that he identifies with us, that he holds us through our darkest hour is enormously helpful. When Owen died, it was during Chinese New Year, um, the the city becomes a bit of a um, bit of a shell. Everyone leaves the city, including our teammates. We were working on a team doing university ministry, and they took off uh, for the holidays to various parts of the country. Going back home after Owen died, we felt desperately alone. Uh, we called our team members. I think it was early the next morning. And they dropped everything and caught a train back um, to, to where we were so that they could be with us. It was an enormous comfort to us to have friends there walking through our grief with us. And when we're in the midst of grieving, it's enormously helpful to know that our Creator is there with us. And not just looking down at us from a distance. Here, present able to identify with us in our suffering because he himself endured pain. In the book of Isaiah, it describes Israel's future king, the Messiah. 
Now we know him as God's own son, Jesus. This is what Isaiah had to say about the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus knew what it meant to be isolated. He knew what it was like to be an embarrassment to others. And he knew grief. At the end of his life, as he hung on a cross, dying as a despised criminal, he cried out to God, his Father, these words. It's recorded for us in Mark's Gospel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Extraordinary words from the Son of God. But these words of shock and anger came as Jesus really did experience his father turning his back on him as he had to bear the cost of human evil and rebellion against God. We haven't got time to go into all that that means, but the incredible truth was that Jesus was punished by God so that we might be forgiven and accepted. That cry was a cry of grief. The loss of the closest relationship imaginable. Jesus the Son being rejected by his Father. At that moment he was utterly alone. Hated, rejected, despised by his own people. And when he turned to his Father, he found nothing but cold, stony silence. Jesus knows grief. And he promises to be with us through it. Knowing that is the key. It's not a silver bullet that takes away our sadness. It didn't suddenly make me want to sing the songs in church. But I believe it is the key to surviving grief. Grief can destroy us. That's the threat of grief. Just as it destroyed Jim. But if we keep holding on to a belief that God is good, that he also went through grief, that he walks through it with us, that can keep us holding on to him and eventually bring us whole out the other side. Let me finish off trying to describe what that looked like for me. For weeks, it might even have been months after Owen died, I was a bit like a four-year-old all over again. I couldn't focus on anything for more than about for more than a few minutes at a time. Reading the Bible properly, sustained times of prayer, listening to sermons, I couldn't do any of it. I wish I could say that my grief deepened my relationship with God. Perhaps it did, but at the time it often just felt like I was numb. I just felt like I went through the motions to get through each day. My prayers were more like bursts of groaning, incoherent noises rather than um, any definable prayer. But looking back, despite the way I was, and this was all God's grace, I claim no credit for it myself, God held on to me through seeing tiny glimpses of his goodness, especially friends who were patient and loving 
who gave us room to grieve as we needed to. And even though I had pretty much no energy or discipline to read the Bible, God reminded me that he was good. Like Job, I could still say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he also reminded me of his goodness to me in the past. You see, at the time, walking through that grey cloud of suffering, we often can't see God's present love with us. But he gave us that memory of the way that he had sustained and loved me in the past. And at times that was all I had to hold on to. I want to finish off with a few verses of another psalm, Psalm 136, because I think this is a very helpful part of God's word that we can apply when we're in the middle of grief and suffering. Here's just a few verses from that psalm. Psalm 136, reading from verse 13. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever and brought Israel through the midst of it. His love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. His love endures forever. Can you pick up a bit of a pattern there? The psalmist is jogging the memory of God's people to remember the great act of deliverance from the Old Testament where he brought the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea and eventually into the Promised Land, out of misery and slavery. He's reminding them how important it is to remember because sometimes all we have to hold on to is a memory of how good God has been. When we're in the midst of grief, all we have to hold on to is a memory of God's kindness to us. To remind us, oh yes, that's right. God really has been good to me. And then to help us to do that, the psalmist repeats this phrase. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. By verse 26, that almost sounds a bit much. We feel like saying, yeah, okay God, I get it. His love endures forever. But sometimes it takes that. Some days it would take me not just 26 times, but a hundred reminders to get through to my head that, oh yeah, God is still good. He still loves me. He's not punishing me. Even though I might not feel it, his steadfast love really does endure forever. Well, today we've seen that grief is a right and natural response to the evil of death and loss that has come into our world. But as we grieve, there is a threat. It can drive us away from other people and it can drive us away from God. But the end of grief, the, 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 the way that God wants to use grief is to take us to him. Is the one who provides for us, who walks with us, who carries us because he himself has known grief and has walked through grief. Now, as I said at the beginning, I acknowledge that I'm not an expert on grief. I don't pretend to have the answers. You may feel like, 
you need some help. Uh, you may feel like you need prayer and a listening ear. We, we can certainly provide that. And we would love to be able to do that with you if you're in that place. Perhaps you need professional health or help walking through grief. We cannot provide that, but we can help point you in the right direction. So if you want to talk to someone or pray with someone, um, Lisa will talk in a minute about giving you an opportunity to do that at the end of the service. Well, let's have the musos come up and uh, we will sing. <laughs>